Making my phone calls alphabetically, I'm Jasmine. And bringing a salty tear to the eye, I'm Melz. Welcome to Damn Fine TV's Twin Peaks Rewatch. This week we're covering Season 2, Episode 16, sometimes known as The Condemned Woman, or as we're calling it, A Gathering of Angels. Listeners, if you think time and age will mellow the tempest raging inside of us, then you might as well be waiting for us to grow wings and join the circus. Now let's rock. This episode first aired on February 16th, 1991. It was written by Trisha Brock and directed by Leslie Linka Gladder. On first watch of this episode, I thought... Is this just a breath of fresh air from last week? Is the is the bar so low now that I just think this is a great episode because it's not Slaves and Masters? But on second watch, this is an awesome episode. I really, yeah. really enjoyed this one. And even if it is just a breath of fresh air, whatever, I don't care. It was a great time. There's like lots of great character intros, including the Pine Weasel, the infamous Pine Weasel. We have a huge scene at the end of the episode with Josie, the return of Bob. Oh, my God. And that scene between Shelly, Audrey, and Donna is always, it's always been a standout for me, even though it's so brief. But it's a great, it's a great moment. And we have two women behind the camera this week. We have a woman writing the script. We have a woman at the camera directing It's great. I'm so happy to see this, especially after we talked about last week, you know, Diane Keaton being one of three women that would direct Twin Peaks episodes in, you know, the whole run of the series. So this is great. I'm super excited. So I use DVDs to watch the episodes. It's the second last DVD in the set, which is like, that feels huge to me. We are really rounding the corner towards the end here. I know. I mean, like, after I finished the episode, I was like, how many are even left? Because, I mean, I knew we were getting towards the end. But then when I realized just we only have a handful left, I was like, no, I'm just enjoying it so much this time around. And I know we've, like, really come to a big realization with that, like, realization time, you know, where it's like, oh, my gosh, didn't realize I liked season two so much. But I do. Yeah. I agree with you. So many big things happening in this episode. I loved it. I and I so remember kind of shitting a little bit on this episode when I watched it the first time around simply for like Billy Zane. But when he walked into this episode this time, I was like, "Whoo! all right, we're on the right track. (laughs) track. Yeah, I don't remember you shitting on him last time around. Well, I think it's more like I'm still burned inside because of what he did in Titanic. Okay, yes. So it's like a personal vendetta Mm -hmm, I have mm -hmm. against Billy Zane. Fair. So Fair. (laughs) Well, speaking of Titanic, let's dive into our damn fine facts because the first one up is the Titanic references in this episode. 
Of course, you know, we have Billy Zane on the scene now, and he is in Titanic, right? I think he plays Cal. Cal. Um, And then we have the line that Norma says to Hank, I'd rather be his whore than your wife, also said by Kate Winslet's character to Billy Zane's character. And then what I didn't realize, and I could have brought up maybe uh, last week, two weeks ago, whatever, um, David Warner, who plays Thomas Eckhart, plays Cal's bodyguard in Titanic. Oh my god. His like oh, valet so bodyguard right. or whatever. Yeah. So it's like a a Titanic Twin Peaks crossover. <laughs> okay. This morning I was trying so hard to cuz I'm like all about connection route. Now you you know, so I was like, yeah. okay, how can I connect it? I mean, obviously those two things. I did not even realize, but now that you've said it, I was like that is definitely his bodyguard yeah. assistant, whatever. Yeah, I, had I to hated look up him a, too. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, anyone associated with Cal, maybe with the exception of Rose, was shitty, right? But yeah, I looked up a photo. They're obviously so much younger. It's so interesting to see, but... Well, yeah, okay. I think Titanic came out in 97. Yeah, so maybe I, it's like six years later six or whatever. Years. Yeah. 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 Okay, Crazy. so... Speaking of Norma's line, uh, we got an email from one of our damn fine listeners, Agent Ivy. Thank you, Ivy, for this email. Thank you for the heads up about this. But she sent us like a little uh, excerpt from Peggy Lipton's autobiography, which is called Breathing Out. And I think I'll share the photos that Ivy sent over. But this is basically a summary. Um, Peggy Lipton had a really difficult encounter during her scene with Hank where she does say that line, uh, I'd rather be his whore than your wife. So my sort of summary here, again, I'll share the photos so you can read the whole thing. But basically, she wanted to rehearse beforehand uh, with Chris Mulkey. And he said no, even though they'd done that before during scenes. So, you know, she kind of wondered, maybe this was just him getting into character. She also mentions that she wouldn't spend a lot of time with certain actors if, you know, the vibe of their characters was to be distant, that kind of thing. Like, she was very sort of method in that way, I guess. So, you know, she was maybe just thinking that that was the case, why he didn't want to rehearse beforehand. But then during the scene, he grabbed the collar of her coat, yanked her face into the bars, and then held it there while he just basically yelled at her, freaked out, swore at her, all this kind of stuff. And she was bruised because of it. And so, of course, she confronted the director. And my heart was breaking, obviously, for Peggy as I was reading this, but also thinking about the fact that there was a woman behind the camera. Like, yeah, how could you let this happen? I mean, nobody should let this happen. But the fact that it was a woman was really pulling at my heartstrings. And she said that the director or the director was like, I had no idea that this was coming up. And Peggy did believe this to be true. Like, this was all kind of on Chris Mulkey. So basically, like, fuck you, dude. Uh, This is his last appearance in Twin Peaks and good riddance. Like, see you the fuck later. I a couple months ago, I shared a picture of Chris Mulkey when he was younger and I was like, oh, what a babe. And now I'm so regretful of that because fuck this dude. Oh, my God. That's horrifying. Yes. Like, not cool. Like, that's disturbing. Yes. And she even talks about in the passage, like, You know, sometimes you can do this kind of thing when you're doing a scene. You want it to remain a surprise to the other actor because you're trying to evoke some sort of real um, passion there. But typically it would be something that is run by the director first so that you can kind of it's kind of like 
it's kind of like consent in a different way. Like if the director deems it to be valuable, worthy, they'll let it go ahead. Had Leslie Linkaglatter known about this, I don't think she, I think she would have been like, absolutely the fuck not unless you check it with Peggy because that's physical violence. Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I do not lie. Mm -mm. But like I said, it's our last appearance from Hank. So see you later. Goodbye. Hope, uh, you know, he says that uh, if he goes back to jail, he's going to die. And I hope that's what happens, honestly. I hope you fall off a cliff. Yeah. And then also, speaking of last appearances, this is also our last appearance from James. Yay! I mean, like, I'm almost sad about it because I didn't realize while I was watching the episode, it was just like it came up in some trivia while I was doing research. And I kind of think he goes out on a good note, honestly. I do, too. I mean, we can talk about that in the scene, but yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that is more of a, I mean, yay, but also, like, yeah, well, we could definitely talk about it in this scene because I had some feelings I didn't think I was going to. Right? No, surprised to me, yeah. okay, to say the least. So. I mean, we're going to hear, I think we hear his voice on a phone call in the future, but this is his last, like, full appearance in the flesh, in the forehead in flesh. The flesh. <laughs> and then I did look up the poem that... Wyndham Earl sends to Audrey, Shelley, and Donna. It's called Love's Philosophy by Percy Shelley, who was married to Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. So I thought that was fun to bring up. But I think I'll leave the details of the poem until we actually get to that scene at the Roadhouse. But just wanted to make that connection there. So I love that. That's damn fine facts. All right. Well, let's get into it. Cooper shares Wyndham's message with Harry. And he also confesses that Caroline was the love of his life. I mean, I guess. I guess. (laughs) It was very strange, right? Because I was like, well, yeah, I guess he's been giving off that vibe about Caroline. But it was just very strange to hear him say it in that way to Harry. Yeah. And more for the spoiler section, honestly. But okay. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I just, I didn't realize that that face was a mold of Caroline's. How are you going to tell that someone was beautiful from a mold of a fucking face, Harry? I think he was just like, I don't know what to say in this moment. Maybe I'll just compliment Carolyn, Caroline, and uh, just move on from there. (laughs) Right. Like, it was giving me two vibes here. A, it was obviously giving me William Shatner and Michael Myers, because William Shatner's face is Michael Myers' mask. But then it was also giving me like the original, quote unquote, Batman with Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson as a Joker. And there's this moment in that where Kim Basinger has on um, like a half mask or something like that. But it gave me that vibe also where it was like, because hmm. it's this woman that is caught in between these two guys or whatever. You know okay. what I mean? And yeah. she has like a weird uh, fate or whatever you have it from that. But Yeah, but I just was like, this is just odd to me because I know that, you know, women who uh, become pregnant or people that become pregnant and give birth, maybe they'll make a mold of their tummies, you know, to show. But I was like, when would you have, this is a weird molding kit. Let's just put it that way. Did he do it after he killed her? Like, when did he make this That's exactly where my mind was going. Or is he just that talented? Like, he remembered every, all of Carolyn's features and just, like, went from there. Yeah, I don't know, dude. It was so weird. Um, (laughs) 
what I noticed right away, though, was the opening of the episode. Like, we start with a shot on that little owl in, like, a globe kind of thing. And to me, I was like, this is how you do the owl imagery. This is very understated. This is just, like, a simple sort of knickknack on Harry's desk. It doesn't feel in your face. <clears throat> Diane Keaton, like, takes some pointers, maybe. Um, but it just, yeah, it felt really understated. And then even the shot of the chessboard as we're leading into the mask in the next shot, that's just a normal-sized chessboard, which is pretty cool. Like, I, you know, just pointing out that these pieces of iconography from Twin Peaks can be featured in episodes that in ways that work. Not so in your face, Miss Keaton. Mm-hmm. The other Keaton, Diane, not Diane. Diane, not Diane. Uh, Pete's killing him softly with his jokes while Catherine is in no mood for it. Josie returns from her stick gathering to find Andrew alive and well. <laughs> okay, speaking of those sticks, I have a question. Like, do you think Joan Chen does her own stunts? <laughs> because that faint, I mean, that's expert level stunt work. She should have got a nod for her own stunt work. She's a stunt woman. That's right. <laughs> okay, I just, I guess she was getting sticks for the fire. All I could think about was, yeah. like, she's on a Boy Scout mission. That's all I could think. Like, she's just a what bird doing? collecting things for her nest. <laughs> uh, I loved the transition here, though, too. Just another point about direction. But as the mask fades out and we lead into the scene at Blue Pine, like, I thought that was another really nice piece of... Direction, cinematography, whatever you want to call it. The boys, you know, having fun at breakfast was very cute. But Catherine's face is absolutely me whenever, like, my partner Tyler makes a stupid joke. It's just like, salt and pepper, please. (laughs) I am in no mood today. Yeah. I know I've said it in the past, but I don't think I've ever actually seen Piper Laurie look so beautiful. She does look great. Yeah, I felt like she was just something felt different. Maybe I don't. No, we saw her last episode. So I don't know what it is, but there was just something about it just struck me in in this episode throughout yeah. the whole every time we saw Catherine, I was like, gosh, she's stunning. She's yeah. gorgeous, you know? I wonder if it's I mean, it could just be different makeup. I don't think that she's wearing anything that's too different from her normal mm-hmm. costuming, but I mean it could even be lighting. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. But she was beautiful. I mean they she, but she was totally giving them the mom face. Like, I need you two to knock it off. Yeah. Come on now, boys. I'm here for business. I'm here on business, people. Yes. This is my own home and I'm having breakfast, but I'm here on business. <laughs> I actually really enjoyed Catherine all throughout this episode. And I know I brought up, like, not enjoying her at all, especially in the scene where her and Thomas were talking about, like, selling Josie. I thought that was so gross. But I think it's also because, you know, in a similar way to where you were able to laugh last week because you knew that the Civil War plot was coming to an end. I think similarly here, I was like, I know Josie's about to, you know, well, we'll get to that. What happens to this (laughs) poor lady? But I think I was just able to enjoy it because we're at the tail end of that story, too. And Catherine was just so, like, deliciously devious throughout this whole thing that I was just able to have a good time with her. Ooh, deliciously devious. Deliciously. Deliciously. I've got a button for that. Okay. I I love love it. it. Um, And then also, I have to just say this. uh, Superb acting when Josie saw, 
you know, Andrew there, right? That's what I mean. <laughs> like, I immediately I was like, this woman does her own stunt work because it's not she just the just stunt work at all. Yeah, it's all of it. I yes. was like, yes, <laughs> so seamless. It was so seamless. Like, could they not put down a fucking mat for her to fall on? Because it clearly looked as though it was going to hurt when she fell. <laughs> it was like a child I'm, fainting and trying to be dramatic or like a soccer player, you know, doing a swan dive. Listen, this was James when he stubs his toe on the carpet. Okay. <laughs> Harry charges Hank with the attempted murder of Leo and Hank tries to offer up the perp responsible for killing Andrew Packard. When Harry refuses, Hank tells him it's Josie and welcome to the main stage, Harry the Hulk. Oh my good God. His yelling face makes me laugh so much. I mean, I, I try to take it seriously as much as possible, but there's just something about the like, get him out of here. <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> and then the way he pumps his fist, like, oh my God. I'm telling you, like, did he have, oh, I wish I had been paid more attention to this, but I feel like he almost had, like, a sandwich baggie, like, they punch. <laughs> I feel like that's, <laughs> to make I was like, leave that, yeah, leave that Ziploc bag alone and do anything to you, Harry. Yeah, it was so goofy, and um, again, I, I, I want to take him seriously, because I know that this is a big episode for Harry, and I know that these are a lot of emotions going around for him, but... His, I think it's just because Michael, Aunt, Aunt Keen, however you say that, like he's just such a sweet person normally on screen that seeing him angry, I wonder if it's more of a nervous laugh because you're like, oh my God, dad's mad. Like what's going on? <laughs> we just went from mom telling you to knock it off in the previous scene. Yes. So now dad's pissed that yes. you haven't locked it off. Exactly. <laughs> Ugh, but yeah, I can't get over it. Get him out of here. And we're going to see more of that excellent, excellent yelling face later. No, bless his heart. I, and you're right. Like, he's so sweet that. Yeah. I, it's kind of like this. I want to recount a story. <laughs> and this is terrible. And I, I was old enough to know better. But about six years ago, I had a family member pass away. So I went home. Mm -hmm. And my best friend also, you know, went home to go to the funeral with me. Mm -hmm. Now, six years ago means I was in my 30s. <laughs> not trying to age myself. Uh-huh. But like when she and I get I mean, together you're still in your 30s. It's well, yeah. We we just revert back to these like kids. You know what I mean? Right. So anyway, my mom was like basically like you two knock it off in the back up back seat. Cause we were like make, doing all this crazy stuff back yeah. there, right? And she said, if you don't get out, no, she said, if you don't knock it off, I'm gonna make you get out of this car. She said something along those lines. So I immediately went, oh, what are you going to do? Call the triple A to tow us away. But all I could think about in this moment was, was when she went from knock it off to get, I'm going to, you're going to get out of this car. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt bad later because I was like, don't torment your mother is in her seventies. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Yeah. You know? But yeah. Oh, I love that though, that you have a friend that just like brings that out in you though. I mean, that's so rare for most people to still know someone from that age. Right. It's true. And I mean, but I'm going to tell you though, like she went into super like mean mom mode and I, but I couldn't stop laughing at it 
just like I could stop laughing at yes. Harry when he yes. was in super mean mode too. You so know? it is a kind of a nervous laugh because it's like that parental figure or that like authority figure that you're like, oh man. Like I I feel like if Bobby were in this scene, he would just he would be hysterically laughing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I guess I was a terror like Bobby Briggs back then. <laughs> Um, and I obviously can't let this scene go without just talking about the fact that Hawk trips this man up off his crutches. He's a good friend. He's a good friend to Harry. I, I love Hawk. In real life, I would be so against any cop doing this, even to a person like Hank, who I think should, you know, pay for his crimes. I'd be like, well, fuck that cop. But in this world, I'm like, way to go, Harry. Or way yes. to go, Hawk. Yeah. <laughs> Albert is ready to get Josie, but Cooper wants more evidence and time. Cooper's really letting friendship get in the way right now. And for whatever reason, I was reminded of that line from Audrey a couple of episodes ago when she said something to the extent of like, you know, the only thing wrong with you is that you're perfect. It was something like that, right? And I mean, Mm -hmm. in this moment, Cooper is being that perfect friend, being that really understanding, empathetic guy that we know him to be, but it's like the evidence keeps piling up, Cooper. Like at some point you're going to have to make a move. And I do love that it shows how much he loves Harry, but you need to listen to Albert. The advice is always listen to Albert. Constant voice of reason. Always. Yeah. Like period. End of discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like Albert, I think it's very funny to think about like how he feels about Harry. Like we know, like they had the bro hug. Mm-hmm. They had the talk. Yep. They were happy to see each other when Albert came back to town. So, no, like, Albert and Harry are not Harry and Cooper. Right. But there's still something there, and Albert's able to put that aside yes. to be like, these are the facts, you mm-hmm. know? So it's just funny to see that Albert is doing what Cooper should be doing. Yeah. Um, and, and he doesn't have the relationship that Cooper has with Harry. Right. And Albert is still showing some level of compassion. Oh, I love you, Albert. Randy is not here for business, Audrey. Prince Charming rolls in and recalls a fond memory of Heidi, I mean Audrey. She also opens Wyndham's invitation. Yes. Listen, Randy is keeping it real in this scene. Like, he is saying what all the great Northern employees are thinking. And I was so here for this. Like, as much as I love Audrey, I agree. I'm like, "Uh, you're kind of moving up the ladder pretty quickly. You are surpassing everybody around you that's been doing all the grunt work, that's been playing drums for your father's little fucking dip into the Civil War brain. Are you really going to do housekeeping, Audrey? Because I doubt it. (laughs) He killed me when he said that to her. They're like, oh, I can't wait to see you in housekeeping. I was like, well... Listen, Audrey needs to learn, okay? And Randy is here to teach her. Yeah, yeah. Now tell me how you felt when Mr. I know they don't say his name till later, but Mr. Wheeler rolls into town. How did this recollection of a young Audrey make you feel when he was talking to her? My only note is how old is this man? Yeah. I was like, I don't like it. Why are we doing this again? Why are we doing this again with Audrey and the older man? I think we're going to come to learn that they are a little closer in age than we might have guessed. Like, it's just that 
I, I think what we're going to learn is that, yeah, Mr. Wheeler is just very good at business. And so I think he seems a little older. He has a private jet. He has all of these things that make him seem like he's so much older. But this is a weird way to introduce a character. I still really enjoy it. I think it's because I just I know more about the character so I can forgive some things, sweep some other things under the rug. But it's very strange. It's more of this like infantilization almost of Audrey and I just I want better for her but I think we're gonna get there so like what about you well I mean pretty much the same I just just got yucky vibes I mean I think it's because obviously this is our first introduction to him so like you said we really don't know how old he is I mean first impressions right right we don't know the connection it's just odd that someone that she doesn't remember or she doesn't know who it is, is then telling her about this little Heidi outfit that she had on when she was a little girl. I was like, ew. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's weird. And then, uh, but yeah, so she opens this note that is basically saying, get to the roadhouse at 930. It's a gathering of angels. I love the way this is set up. And I also love the way that I mean, I guess I can go ahead and say it here, but like when we even see like Shelly open it, spoiler, I guess, I'm sorry, but nobody seems bothered that A, it's it's a ripped up note mm-hmm. that's missing words and B, it's, t- I mean, I know that we know that a very like um, abuse, I guess I should say, Leo had to write that out. But I don't know, like, I if I received just this random, like, note from somebody with an invitation to the roadhouse, but it the note itself or, like, whatever this ripped up piece of paper looks like, I would be like, I don't know about this. You right. Know? But like, it's just the way all the girls... Yeah, all the girls are kind of like, ooh, what's this? Yeah. <laughs> what's this? I think Norma is the only one that's like, it's a little dangerous. Or it sounds Absolutely. a little dangerous. Yeah. Nadine breaks the news to Ed. She's moved on with Mike and Ed only has one question. All night? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have a personal story. I was not on the wrestling team. Do not get excited and think <laughs> that I was on the wrestling team. That is not where the story is going. When I was a junior, I took a senior class, which was um, zoology. Oh, I love that class. Okay. So we learned about all these animals. Um, anyway, the That's trip, so cool. the class trip, was to the zoo. Right. Okay. And it was overnight because we were going to go in the reptile section at night and watch them, you know, do their thing. It was like really cool, but it was co-ed because it was boys and girls in this class. We were not allowed to be in the same room, like in our sleeping bags and stuff of as the boys. Yeah. And it's no, just they were funny to around. me. But no, actually... I really wasn't. See, I'm a nerd. I don't know if you know this by now, but I was really into the animals. I was like, oh, it's time to go to sleep. I okay. really wanted to go See to the you gorilla. Tomorrow, gorillas. Oh my God. <laughs> that is so weird. <laughs> we don't need any more. We know Oof. we're we're in sync. Oof. Mind melding. But so it just is funny to me because I can rec- like recall this one moment in my high school experience. And I was like, they were, I'm thinking about like the te- the chaperone teachers were like, uh-uh. Right. You can wait in line in the girl's bathroom to brush your teeth. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that's so funny. Like, I wonder if it was just the school that I went, like, obviously we had different high school experiences, but I once went on a band trip. Uh, I did not play an instrument. I was a singer, but 
we hung out with the boys like all night. They were in our rooms. We were in their rooms. We were drinking together. We were smoking pot together. I mean, like, <laughs> Mel's is getting blown straight out the way right now. Um, uh, yeah, hold on. Like, I've got a button for that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know if it was just like more relaxed because of our chaperones. Like, I swear to God, our band teacher was roaming the ho- hotel hallways with a beer in his hand. Like, he could <laughs> not have cared less. Like, but yeah, so that so for me, when she said she spent the night like a, you know, a, an incredible night with Mike or whatever, I was like, yeah, OK, that makes sense. I mean, I'm from a very small southern town, very like Southern Baptist, you know. So yeah, I'm pretty sure like that has a lot to do with it. But man, but so yeah, so A, we've got the realization that her and Mike have boned and that they've boned all night long. Which like, is this statutory rape? I don't I (sighs) listen, at this point, I'm just like, it is what it is. Like, I think in our brains, we just have to be okay with the fact that Nadine mentally is 18. It's it's tough, though. I'm not going to lie. You know I love Nadine, but I'm just yeah. like, ugh. High point, though. Very glad to see that her shelf is back together and seemingly not worse for the wear. That's a good point, but I will say this. I did not see anywhere my favorite tchotchke, which mm-hmm. is the little girl with the eye patch. Yeah, true. R.I.P. Tchotchke. Um... Yeah, and then, but basically, Ed is, I mean, I think he's stunned just to learn that Nadine is doing all these things, but it's also, I mean, she's basically letting him go, because she's like, but you've got Norma, Eddie, but anywho, that's Nadine, and that's it. she's moved on. Breakup time, yeah. Catherine eavesdrops as Coop questions Josie. Catherine tells Josie Thomas wants to see her alone. Josie's got a gun. Josie's got a gun. This the is our... whole world's come undone. Do, 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 do. First it was Shelly's got a gun. Now it's Josie's yeah. got a gun. I love it. Woo. She, what I noticed here that really stuck with me in terms of Josie and Cooper's conversation was that she doesn't even bother to try and she she just doesn't even bother to say anything about her feelings towards Harry, even as a cover to try and smooth things over. And I thought that that was very telling. So I think we can finally put to bed all of the questions about whether or not Josie actually reciprocates Harry's feelings. I just think she still would have tried, even if she was faking it, I think she still would have tried had she had any semblance of feelings for Harry at all. It's sad because you know how much Harry, I mean, like we just had that scene where he punched a sandwich bag. Yes. And Cooper over says, Hank, he, you own, or yeah, you own his heart. Right. Exactly. And she's just like, hmm, anyway, you know, I hate it. I hate yeah. it. More, more fun with Catherine though. Again, like I just love, it's the deliciously devious stuff from her. It's just so much fun. And the way so when Josie finds the gun and then she sort of like caresses it for a moment, I think this is another scene where in another director's hands, this might have been, you know, red fingernails traipsing all across it for hours and hours on end. But this is very subtle and this works really nicely. This feels very much in line with Josie and her physicality. And I I liked that quick little moment. Yeah. And it's also Josie's mentality like this really sh- This did the great job, just that subtle 
move right there yeah. of showing like where Josie's mind is going, right? Absolutely. Like we don't have to wonder in that moment, yeah, like what team or what side is Josie on? Exactly. We, this has pretty much told us that the way that she grabs the gun and caresses it, that we know, yeah, uh, Harry's m- not even a thought in her head, even no. after Cooper brings it to her attention, you know? Yep. But I was like, Catherine, you just leave your keys behind a book? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I almost wonder if the keys were in her hand the whole time and she was just like setting up the the space that Josie could find the gun in. But yeah. Not Catherine the Magician. Ooh, I like it. I love it. I sort of think Catherine is magical in a way. Uh, I mean, as much as I hate Mr. Tajamora, you know, we could talk about glamour spells. I mean, we really don't need to get into this, but I just think there is something sort of magical and woodsy and, you know, connected to the owls and stuff about Catherine. So. Oh, sure. I mean, honestly, I think we could make that assumption or that statement about pretty much anyone in Twin Peaks. I agree. Yeah. There's some sort of magic running through all of their veins. It's in the water or something. I don't know about Pete, <laughs> but what are you talking about? Those eyebrows? Nobody can move <laughs> their eyebrows without magic like that. Nobody can make an egg smiley face, uh, bacon smiley face like that. That's magic. He's a chess uh, wizard. Oh, that's right. How could I forget? <laughs> Ben's on a health kick. John Justice Wheeler rocks in and Bobby is now Bob Briggs. <laughs> Ben's inspiring speech leaves the board confused, but the message is clear. We must save the pine weasel. The weasel, I think you mean to say. It's very heavy on the S. Okay, I have it on good authority from my buddy Bob Briggs. I hate that he gets called Bob in this scene. I mean, I think I think the parallels, you know, Bob and Mike, that's always supposed to have been there throughout Twin Peaks, but There's something about Bob Briggs that sounds like such an old man and I don't like it. Yeah, like I don't know if it was Ben trying to like um, introduce him as like his executive assistant, right? He's supposed to sound more mature for sure. Right. But then later in the scene, I mean, Ben calls him Bobby. Yeah. So it's like that didn't stick around long. No. But yeah, oh my God. Celery chomping Ben is here. He's on the scene. (laughs) One of the uh, title ideas for this week was From Cigars to Celery, the Ben Horn story. (laughs) And it made me laugh. I hope so, You succeeded in that. (laughs) There's so much comedy in this scene, though. It's the fact that Ben's eating a a piece of celery. Mm -hmm. Not just a piece. I'm talking about the stalk. The whole stalk. Yep. The whole kit and caboodle. Yep. He's in a windsuit. He's not in a suit. It just was like, what is this, keto? What are you doing? Like, what he, was he doing here? Do you guys in the States have body break? This no, It's a thing from like is. when we were kids, though. It was like, body break, body break. It was like a little it, like commercial kind of thing when you were watching TV. And it was Hal Johnson oh. and Joanne McLeod. And they would have like these little like health tips. No, but we needed that growing up. Oh, my God. (laughs) So I'll have to send you a clip and maybe I'll like link a clip in the show notes. But he was giving me Hal Johnson vibes big time. I I do not know what you're talking about, but I am here for it. I can't wait for you to see it. You'll you'll get it. It's the windsuit. It's the windsuit. It's definitely that's what it is. Um, Also, but the comedy is not just in that moment, but also just the fact that Jerry is just sitting there with a Band-Aid in between his eyebrows. What happened? I'm assuming this is when he got, didn't he get hit 
with the flag in the Civil War. Oh, okay. Thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But all it's just this little bit. And I was just like, okay. so goofy. All right, Jer. Yeah, there's so much great comedy in this scene. I love how dumbfounded Jerry is too by this, by Ben's idea of like the human spirit. Like Jerry just does not know what to do with that information. And even Audrey and Bobby, the way that they look at one another, it's like they are just, they're like, this is Civil War, the sequel. This is just a new wacky plan from my dad. Like, there's so many great moments in this scene. And the thing is, Ben is still evil underneath it all. He can chew as much celery as he wants. He can swap his black suit for a windsuit. But this is just, he's just doing better at figuring out how to cover up his schemes with that Absolutely. supposed human spirit. But I mean, all he's trying to do still is block Catherine and being able to develop. He's, you know, if he is basically like, if I can't have the land, then no one can. Absolutely. Something I never noticed before somehow is that Jack is a Twin Peaks boy. I somehow that has always eluded me, but he is a local kid. I wonder if he came from the same place that little Nikki came from. Because he did, he did have some hard times growing up. Yeah. yeah. Well, we need, we need some more exploration into the Twin Peaks um, orphanage, orphanages, I guess, for lack yeah. of a better term. <laughs> yeah. Home for boys. I don't know. Whatever yeah, you want to call it. it. I think it was home for boys. Something <laughs> like that. And then, of course, Ben is going to run for Senate now because he has all of that experience as a political figure during the Civil War. So, Oh, that's right. Also, because he's getting healthy. Exactly. He's going to run on a platform of celery and weasels. <laughs> Gosh, I just cannot. Oh. Wyndham leaves another note, this time for Shelly. Annie, Norma's sister, is coming to town, and Ed proposes to Norma. Oh, it's so sweet. It's so sweet. I love to see it. It's so sweet, but it's sad, too, because it's faded. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's just another heartbreak waiting to happen. I don't feel like that's any kind of spoiler because I feel like we, if you're watching it for the first time, you have to know that eventually, I mean, Nadine's probably going to snap out of it the same way that Ben snapped out of his. Right. Or you at least have to assume that like, I mean, Nadine is not in her right mind. So what is Ed even thinking in this moment? But stuff with Ed and Norma, I always just take whatever I can get. Because you never know what's around the corner for them. So any sweet moment, I just, you know, it's like we were saying before, it's juicy. We just slurp, slurp, slurp it up. But yeah. Absolutely. Wyndham hiding in plain sight at the double R is so creepy. And I love it so much. And he does this again later at the roadhouse. And I, yeah, I don't know why I was so down on Wyndham Earl in previous watches. Because he is truly an evil mastermind. And I, I love to watch him do this stuff. Oh, for sure. I mean, like we talked about last episode about like the home invasion, like that's a horror. Yes. Right. Because I mean, like he got into Coop's room and he left all of that stuff for him. This is also another horror. People don't know who he is. Like they don't know what he looks like. Well, A, Harry and Hawk, let's just use him as an example. They don't know what he looks like. Yeah. And then, but else, everybody outside of that, don't, they don't even know what's going on with Wyndham Earl, no. right? Like, they don't even know who this person is. Yeah. It's this whole story of, like, someone, like, stalking you and you have a no clue, mm-hmm. but you also don't know who they are. Yes. You know, because stalkers can be people you know. You know, Absolutely. That, that can happen. It, so it's just all of that, like, 
kind of internal, like very personal horror, right? Like yes. he's going yeah. into people's rooms and leaving things. And then he's like, literally like Shelly probably served him his breakfast or lunch or whatever that was, you yeah. know, and, and he's just like stalking his prey. Oh, it's so creepy. And then, yeah, Norma's sister is apparently on the way. So listen, that little exchange show where they were explaining like her escaping from the convent or whatever I was like I can't like you mean to tell me that Norma's had a sister in the in that was a nun this whole time this whole (laughs) time and that life ain't for Shelly I get it oh yeah Shelly was like "Uh uh-uh not here no boyfriends no tv the horror (laughs) Leo's making spears for Wyndham and it ain't the Britney kind I mean, I don't know if there's a lot to expand upon in this one scene, but all I could think about was all work and no play. Like, it almost was like this weird, like... Totally. He is just sitting there, like, making the sticks for these spears, and it is literally like I said, all work and no play, right? Yeah, they're just, they're basically just prepping for their villain shit, you know, like, getting <laughs> things together. But my only question from this scene is, is Wyndham doing Leo's hair? Because I don't think Leo's doing his hair. How could he? He doesn't have time. Exactly. So how is it? Do they have a hairdresser coming through to just like, you know, poof up Leo's ponytail? How is this happening? Here's what I've just realized in this moment. Breaking news. Okay. (laughs) The magical part of Leo is the ponytail. Incredible (laughs) insight. Yes. Because what else about him would be magical? Nothing. It is the ponytail. It's just he woke up like this. So he woke up like this. Very happy to finally have a Beyonce. Beyonce. Not Beyonce. (laughs) Very happy to finally have a Beyonce track on the mixtape. Norma wants a divorce and Hank pulls the therapy card. Norma refuses to help Hank and I, oop. And what I mean by that is I would rather be, we've already said this, I know, but I would rather be his whore than your wife. One hundred and fifty thousand percent. <laughs> fuck Chris Mulkey, fuck Hank, Hank be Hankin, whatever. Ugh. See you later, well, dude. I mean, now, especially after knowing what you told us, like in the damn fine facts, I can't even like, I don't even think I could talk about this scene because it's like, I don't even want to knowing what went on behind I mean, behind the scenes, you know? Yeah, watching it now, I do have to always wonder how much of this is just Peggy and what was she feeling in those moments? And yeah, it sucks. Yeah, because now you can kind of recall it on a different level and almost be like, wow, she did such a great job, like basically telling Hank to fuck off, but probably because she was actually feeling like fuck off to the actor, Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I loved it, though. I'm so glad that Norma was like, I'm done with your shit. For sure. Like, I'm over it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad she wasn't sucked back in by all of Hank's bullshit. and Because he definitely did the trope of pulling the therapy card. I don't want to be like this I anymore, know. Norma. Yeah. I was like, oh, But Hank, you're up. like, you're a zillion days too late and a bazillion dollars too short. Like, oh, fuck off. Oh, God. And all I could really also think about is like that, I don't want to say trope, but just kind of like that uh, stereotype maybe of like the small town, like quarterback star football player that kind of ends up like a big loser. Yeah. I'm thinking of Al Bundy, but he was not like this, but you know what I mean? Where it's like, look at this big football star now, you know, and you're like nothing, you know? Yeah. 
but somehow you continue. I mean, he's not getting away with shit anymore, but he got away with so much shit for so long. And that probably stemmed from him being this big star quarterback. And, you know, he could do no wrong because he's winning for the school. And Hmm. gross, gross, Hmm. gross. Pete solves the next move in Wyndham's puzzle. And Albert tells Coop there's more evidence to bust this bitch. Ooh. Also, Harry is now in his teenage emo phase. Oh, poor Harry. I am, like, honestly devastated by the glances that they all share in the hallway. It's too much. My heart breaks. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's that moment, though, where you think about this. Like, it's that moment where someone, like, pulls you out of, like, pulls your friend out of the office or out of the room. Yeah. And you just have this feeling that they're talking about you. Right. And then, you know what I mean? Like, and so it's like, I don't think he heard everything that Cooper and Albert no. had to say. But it's just that feeling of like, especially after probably what he had just heard from Hank. Right. And then oh, it's for like, sure. I mean, he knows mm-hmm. some of what's going on. And I'm sure that he like, as much as we make fun of Harry, he's not stupid. He can be a little goofy, but he's, he's right. a very smart person. And he can deduce what's going on, particularly from those glances that they all share. Like, those are knowing glances. What I'm realizing as we move through this episode is that there's a lot of really short scenes in this episode and not a lot to really unpack. But I think I'm really appreciating part of what maybe felt like that breath of fresh air and, you know, had me loving this episode so much is just a really nice pacing of everything. Like we're getting a lot of story beats down and it just felt like enlivened in that way. Maybe it, yeah, it just reinvigorated things. I mean, it wasn't being dragged out, but Albert in this moment though, I kind of was like, Oh, Albert, don't, don't oh, her, the bitch. bitch. Yeah, you know I what I mean? Like but then also I was like, well, fuck Josie. Yeah. Cause of how she's doing Harry. So I was like, yeah, let's bust this bitch. I agree. I agree. It's like it walks a line for sure. I'm I always bristle a little bit when men call women a bitch because it's just been used against us in very derogatory ways for so long. Mm -hmm. But also she's kind of a bitch. So Andrew visits Josie and he tells her to go see Thomas. Ooh, Josie in the mirror. Talk about pilot echoes. Well, it's also interesting what happens to her in the end. Just that we got a shot of her looking in a mirror. Yes, very true. Do you feel at all for Josie watching her? Because I think Catherine and Andrew are essentially gaslighting her in this episode. Or they're at least manipulating her in a way so that she thinks that Eckert is her only way out. And it's kind of like the Albert thing. Like part of me is like, oh, that's so messy and I feel for Josie. But the other part of me is like, eh. You did try to kill him, so. Yeah, I'm going to be honest, like, and this might be a strange, like, parallel that I'm making, but I kind of started to feel about Josie, about how I felt about Hank when he was talking with Norma, where I was like, what you're saying, like, she's trying to, like, you know, come at Andrew in some sort of way where it's like, help me, save me type thing, but she's done so much. And yeah, no, I don't like anybody being gaslit in any way shape or form but she's also semi doing it to like she's also trying to do it to them you know what I mean yeah and I feel that she's probably done it to Harry to some extent as well like I mean convincing him that they had something that they clearly didn't and yeah this is again like 
we've talked about before the the walking of the line that Josie's character was able to do early on in the series where you're like, oh, is she playing this side of the game? Is she doing this side of the game? And it, it kept things interesting. It's back to form here. Like there's a lot of, yeah, walking that line that I find really interesting and keeps me engaged. James scoots in on his bike and meets Donna for a picnic. Evelyn's busted and so is James. Donna forgives him and sends James on his way. Aww. Nice day for a picnic. Okay, nice (laughs) day for a picnic. There's somewhere in Twin Peaks they haven't been at this point. I don't know. It's just a part of the woods that they haven't been to, I guess. Maybe they've never picnicked there before. I guess. It just seems odd. I don't know. Yeah. It's a sweet scene, though. I think we alluded a little bit to this in the damn fine facts, but there's a maturity with both of these characters that I really enjoyed because it wasn't it wasn't the script trying to make them older than they are. It was actually like, okay, these are the events that we have just been through and we've actually taken a breath to kind of take that all in, reflect on it and make decisions moving forward that understand the consequences of all that or kind of grapple with all of the outcomes from all of these crazy tragic events and I really appreciated the maturity from both sides here and the way that it was just like very bittersweet in terms of well we love each other but we know that we need to do some healing and you know I'll wait for you but James still has to do his thing he has to get on his bike and go and I I really enjoyed it. Like, you know, credit where it's due for these two. This was in some weird way, like a little heartwarming. Like when we see, I guess when we say goodbye to certain characters, it's usually not in a way that is so um, okay. You know what I mean? Like right. we just sent Hank off and we hate him. Like, you know, it, so when we say goodbye to certain characters, it's, I don't know, like this made me feel like, okay, Actually, James needs to go and do this. I know I've been shitting on him having to, you know, get away from things because it felt so melodramatic. Yeah. But whatever happened in this conversation between the two of them really got me in my feels, you know, and it was was Donna crying. It was everything, you know, and I was like, wow, this is really, really good. Yeah. And and also this kind of you you're left wondering, like, well, what is what is James going to do? You know, like, I don't know. Like, it didn't work out very well when he tried to, like, escape, quote unquote, the first time. Like, I'm hoping you get better results this time you escape. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Hopefully no more Evelyn's. Oh, God. Harry needs to see Josie. Pete and Catherine sent him to the Great Northern where Josie is meeting with Thomas. Andrew surprises Thomas in the elevator. And they talk about Josie's numerous betrayals. Ooh. The walls are closing in on Josie. They sure are. The uh, the drawers are closing in, we could say. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine's reaction when the door, when somebody's knocking at the door is exactly me when our doorbell rings. <laughs> I, I just stare at Tyler. I'm like, I am not answering that. I do not Listen. answer the door. That is not my job. And poor Pete, because he is the new Josie and he just does not know it yet. He <laughs> does. I loved Absolutely everything about this because I also relate to Catherine because she's having coffee and reading a book. Yeah. Which means do not disturb. That's exactly it. Yeah. And then poor Pete is just trying to untangle a fishing line. Is that what it is? Because I have, what the hell is Pete up to? Is this fishing wire? 
Yes. Okay. And I have watched my poor father, who is an avid fisherman, do the same struggle. And I always wanted to say to him, just go buy some new wire. Right. It's okay. So more, you know what I mean? uh, more connection between your dad and Pete. Oh, God. <laughs> yes. He's turning into Pete Martell, everybody. Uh, yeah. So this scene in the elevator, though, between Andrew and Thomas, like part of it I find funny because of like the reveal and Thomas being like, I don't believe in ghosts. Like that was so silly and cheesy and just a fun thing to watch. But then they start talking about like our Josie or like Mm -hmm. she's mine. She belongs to me. Like it's just more of that grossness. And you know that, I mean, knowing what happens to Josie is just like, it's so sad. I don't like it. No. But I'm going to tell you, I was laughing like hell because A, the conjunctivitis has cleared up. I know. Good for him, right? B, and we've talked about this on this channel before. On this channel? The level of... Oh, yeah, I know, right? You like that? (laughs) The level of disguise in this this moment. (laughs) Yeah. He literally has on a pair of sunglasses. It's so good. I mean, I know you're not expecting a deceased man to be in the elevator with you. However, he is also not trying to hide it. No. From you. But I think, yeah, he has the enough level of surprise considering that people think he's been dead for like five years. So he was like, you know what? These glasses are going to be enough. Yeah. That's fine. I guess so. I guess so. Jack dines with father and daughter. And Audrey wants to know, what do do? <laughs> I'm sorry. What do do? What what do 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 you do? What do do? What do do? <laughs> hey, that's just a classic first date. Not really first date. That's just a classic dinner conversation question. What do do? What do do? What do I do? just I have the mentality of obviously I guess now a five to six <laughs> year old boy because all I can do is say not what do do. Not what do do. Um, Audrey and Jack do get some alone time when Ben is made aware that the chef has tried to to stab Jerry. I'm sorry. Let me start that over. No, that's fine. I would love to know. I want to see that scene. I want to know what happened between Jerry and the chef. We know that Jerry likes to eat, but what was he doing back in that kitchen that that he needed to get stabbed over. I kind of have in my head that like, so earlier in the pine weasel discussion, he did mention like, oh, those things are great roasted or whatever he said. So I feel like Jer got a hankering for pine weasel, went down to the kitchen, was trying to force the chef to cook it. Meanwhile, Ben has already sent out memos to everyone at the Great Northern, like we must protect the pine weasel. So it was a no-go. They got into a heated battle. It went down. That's my head cannon. Do you remember a scene where Jer was eating like this mysterious meat on a stick? Because I do. And it makes me wonder if that was like the pine weasel. Right. Yeah. Would love that. It I does. It, it does sound familiar. I mean, right now I'm only thinking about the the cheese pig thing, but we've seen Jerry with so much food in his mouth. It's 100 percent possible. Yeah, that's true. But I would not want to work in that chef's kitchen, though. No, nope. what is that, Gordon Ramsay back there? No, I hope that makes my <laughs> head cannon even better. That's yeah, that's great. But yeah, I mean, I enjoy the chemistry here between Jack and Audrey. Audrey seems to be in a better place than she was before she met Cooper. 
I do think that she has, you know, similar to Donna and James, like she has matured a little bit, perhaps through this whole experience with her father and going through all of that stuff at One-Eyed Jacks. But she seems to have a better head on her shoulders at this point. And there's something about the way that there's no like overt clues here, but there's something about the way that they discuss things and his reaction to her saying that she's 18. I just get the sense that they are closer in age for whatever reason. I don't know if you got that same vibe and it could just be because Audrey does feel a little bit more confident, but I'm, I'm not like, this is not giving me those gross innuendo vibes that we were getting between Hooper and Audrey, especially in season one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Yes, obviously he's older than her, but I don't really think by much. I mean, I'm thinking he might be mid-20s. Yeah. Because here's the thing. If Ben took him in when he was younger and built him up, it's very it would be very easy to believe that in his mid-20s he would have achieved this level of like fortune that he's yeah. at now. Yeah. So and maybe that's the magic that runs through Jack is that he's just actually a really good businessman and he doesn't need yeah. to be schemy about it at all. Yeah. And Jack just seems so like, I don't know, this innocent or like wholesome vibe from him. Totally. Yeah. Because I even feel like when Ben was talking about the pine weasel in the earlier scene, even he was a little uncomfortable where he was like, well, I mean, are we what we're doing? Is this ethical? What are we actually doing here? here? Yeah. Yeah. And I got even more of that sense after Ben was explaining like, what he does with these failed businesses and like he makes them more eco-friendly, et cetera. And I was like, okay, so we know Ben's angle on this, on why he's brought him in, but I think he's messing with the wrong one because I, even though Ben might've helped him get to where he's at, I don't think that Jack is going to risk maybe his morals to give Ben what he wants. You know what I mean? Yep. The angels meet at the roadhouse the note fits together. Wyndham watches like snidely whiplash. <laughs> that was a limerick. So that was true. a limerick. Oh, that was beautiful. <laughs> my goodness. That's your magic. Limerick. That was my poem once it got all the pieces got put together. <laughs> it's so nice to see these three women together. Like, even it, though it's a brief scene, even though like not much happens, I feel like we haven't gotten anything close to this since. Audrey and Donna in the bathroom when they made their plan to work together, which never came to pass, which is too bad. But I, yeah, it's such a shame that we don't get more female friendships in Twin Peaks. We have all of these really strong, really well-written female characters who really most of their scenes are just with men, like maybe with the exception of Norma and Shelley, like we do get a lot of time with them you know, I mean, actually not even a lot of time, but we get more time with them than anybody else. But yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of reflective of life, maybe, especially when this was being filmed. Like, I feel like, you know, a lot of the things that we're focused on in Twin Peaks are like, okay, cops, FBI, um, like uh, uh, the horn business, I mean, yeah, we have Catherine running the mill or whatever and Josie running the mill, but still they don't really. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that like women being in these higher positions of power is fewer and far between at that point. And it would be them mostly interacting with men, but it would have been great to see more 
I guess, high school stuff, basically, between these three ladies. But hey, I'll take this and I'll I'll enjoy it and I'll savor it. Yeah, for sure. Again, like what we just talked about, that he this was the other scene of Wyndham. Yeah. Just in plain sight, just watching like his evil plan come together. And yes, it's very snidely whiplash-ish. Whiplash-ish? But then the way he also like curls that toothpick, it just reminded me of like snidely curling his mustache. Of a mustache mustache curl? Yeah, for sure. And it's so creepy though, because it's just the way he's looking at them and ugh, ugh. Yeah. But I feel like Donna, like after like after they put everything together, Donna's the one that's kind of like, what? Because she had this look on her face, kind of like, I don't, I don't know about all this. Because right. see, we didn't get to see Donna receive the, the invitation True. to the roadhouse. Yeah. So just a little callback to like when we were talking about like Shelley's reaction, Audrey's reaction, and I think I guess this would be Donna's our us right. seeing Donna's reaction in real time, right? That makes so. sense. Yeah. Well, so I did write down the lines of the poem that we get here. It is, See the mountains kiss high heaven and the waves clasp one another. No sister flower would be forgiven if it disdained its brother. And the sunlight clasps the earth and the moonbeams kiss the sea. What is all this sweet work worth if thou kissed not me? And... What I found on this is that, like, the main overall theme here is the relationship between the connection that exists for things in the natural world and the poet's desire to be connected to his object of affection. So basically, the entire poem is asking how there can be a unity in nature, but a lack of union in human relationships. And I want to keep thinking about that as we move through because there is something about the way that the town of Twin Peaks is so connected to the nature that surrounds it. And yet we see all of these troubled relationships. I mean, they're not all troubled. We have great examples of healthy relationships for sure, but there's definitely something there in that connection with the poem. And I'm sure that we can explore it further in, you know, episodes to come yeah oh my gosh so I I guess it was just words on paper for me until you explained that because but that's beautiful though to really like think about yeah oh and then also it's like and then that came from Wyndham (laughs) you know what I mean right yeah but that's another side of uh I, I think we first started talking about this with Abby where like he is like Cooper in a way. And that feels like that softer side that might be more similar to Cooper. But when you look at it through the lens of Wyndham, it becomes very eerie. Cooper practices fly fishing when Catherine alerts him to Josie's whereabouts. Josie murders Thomas. She confesses to shooting Cooper when Harry busts in and he means business. Josie dies? I guess who's back? Back again. Bob, Bob is, is back. back. Don't tell your Don't friends. Don't tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs> and I have Josie will now stroke wood forever. Oh, you nasty girl. You nasty. <laughs> Coop's having a little bit of downtime at the beginning of the scene. He deserves it. He deserves it. But does he not look so fucking goofy? I love it. I, I honestly. Too. It's just so goofy. I rewind that so many times just to watch him fiddling with that yarn. I was like, this is great. 
And I just love that he's just in his room. Like there are things going on, but he's got to really practice like this. He's got to get this fly fishing down. Okay. If he's going to be in Twin Peaks. Exactly. If he's going to buy Dead Dog Farm, if he's going to be going fishing with Harry and Pete, I mean, he needs the practice. Absolutely. I don't blame him. (laughs) And he deserves a bit of downtime, like I said. Absolutely. But man, I love the way the scene in Eckert's suite plays out. You know, when Coop gets there, you hear the gunshot. Eckert stands up, and for a minute, you think that Josie has been shot, right? But then the way that, okay, so you see the bullet wound, you see the blood, Eckert falls, and as he falls, it reveals Josie up on the bed with the gun, pointing a gun at Cooper again. Like, it's a really nice full circle moment in a way, and I just, I sort of love the reveal of the fact that she is still alive and she's still sort of in control in these final moments. Absolutely. I mean, it was a flawless reveal. Yes. Agreed. I, yeah. And then just, there's a lot of things that happen with Josie's physicality in this scene alone to where I'm like, wow, that's great. Like later on, again, the way she falls. Does she do her own stunts? <laughs> yeah, she's, she's great. I mean, she needs to get cred for this because it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But it's beautiful even the way she falls later. Like yes. the way that her legs, like the way that they fall in the moment. Like I just kept watching that and I was like, this is, it's like a horrific scene, but the, it's, it's like graceful. the rose growing out of the sidewalk. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. That was very Stephen King of you. Thank you. <laughs> See how my hard work is paying off. Yes, it, it is actually really nice. It, it's weirdly graceful. It's like a tragic ballet or something in a yeah. way. Do can you remember how you felt when this when you saw this for the first time, the uh, Harry and Josie fade out, the spotlight comes back, just like we saw at the roadhouse. Bob is back. He's like he knows Cooper by name, which I find so unsettling. What happened to Josie? And then you see Josie's face in a drawer knob. Like, can you remember? Did you laugh? Were you like, what the fuck just happened? What did you feel? I was genuinely like mouth hanging open. Right. Fair response. And, yeah. But it, it it was for several reasons, though. It was a, I guess I get why Josie felt the need to shoot Cooper, because I guess she thought he was going to eventually they were eventually going to end up where they were where they're at right now. However, right. it's hard for me to give Josie that much credit. Well, she seems like she was on the Jean Renault train, right? Like Cooper was right. the nightmare for her too. Right. Yeah. Um. So there was that. And then obviously not just Bob reappearing and knowing Cooper's name, but Bob speaking like full sentences. Totally. Yes. And the screeching. And the, you know, just all of it, the music oh, right now, like, okay, my heart is like kind of beating out of my chest because I'm just, <laughs> yeah, it still gives me that reaction and I've seen it and I know what was coming, yeah. you know? And then I was really not understanding and maybe still to this day, what the significance of Josie being trapped in the doorknob right. or in the wood really means because it's, it's just, it's an odd thing like did bob possess her and then all this happened that's doesn't seem to fit with what we've seen with bob so far like leland died Mm -hmm. 
do you know what I mean? Like, yes, yes yeah, Josie yeah. died, but I didn't see Leland like get trapped into any like, right, like physical thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, for me, you're right. I don't understand that part of it, but symbolically, I love the idea that she's trapped because when you look back on Josie's story, I feel that she's always been trapped between a rock and a drawer knob since we met her, right? And so for her to, for this to be the culmination of everything in her story, I think fits really nicely. There is like, you know, the the face coming out of the drawer knob is so bizarre. Again, it's one of those bizarre elements that just really works though, especially if we're thinking about just the idea of the woods coming inside in this story and how important wood is basically like, you know, it's like mm. sex in the city. It's the fifth character. Like ah, what is the fifth oops. character in Twin Peaks, you know, but I don't know what the significance of her being trapped in that specific way is. I, I really don't like, I mean, I have feelings about it when we get to the return, but they don't necessarily elaborate or make clear why this is the case. So yeah. I mean, I don't even really know how she dies. Maybe we find that out next episode and I'm just not remembering, but I do not recall because literally in my notes it's just Josie dies like yeah. she just fainted. But that's where I was like it's kind of like with Leland. I mean, we saw Cooper like guiding him towards the light, like kind of like in moving him into his final phase in life. Yeah. This didn't happen for Josie. But it's the same thing, though, because Leland just basically dies. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, I don't think the head injury is what really killed him. It was like this spirit sucked everything out of him in this moment, and then he was done. So I suppose yeah. it's the same thing for it, Josie. Then maybe it could be, yeah. But it's a little, it's, I'm not going to lie, it's a little muddled a bit for me because we don't have the clear distinction that, Bob was in Josie. Why? Right. We didn't see like any, we haven't seen Bob in so long. All I thought was he was still rolling around the forest floor. Exactly. Like we didn't see any nods towards her being possessed in that same way. Right. Yeah. Right. So what an ending though. Like you said, we're back to form with the great endings from season two. And I mean, honestly, this is way less weird to me than anything we saw with the civil war, anything we like experienced in the marshlands anything from episode 15 in general like yeah nadine a, sure I mean, all of that yeah 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 well and i do want to say though oh poor harry i mean yeah. it's like i don't know it's it's just a weird thing like he busts in there meaning business like he i guess he was going to try to take her in for whatever you know well we know what she did but you know for everything that she's done yeah but then for her to just collapse and die in his arms yeah it is it's kind of tragic in a way because I think he had finally come to terms with the fact that Josie was behind all of this it was over for them and then you know it it would have been just a, it would have been hard for Harry to arrest her and you know take her down for this crime or whatever or all of her crimes but is way harder this way. Like he, j she just died. Like, yeah, I'm not going to lie. That whole thing was a little bit off though. Cause he was just like, she's dead. Yes. <laughs> I was like, okay. All right. Yeah. 
Oh, and one Aww. thing too, forgot to mention that uh, I love that the man from another place is just basically dancing on Josie's grave, essentially. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Take so that, weird. Josie. I, but I'm so happy to see both Bob, the man from another place, the spotlight coming back. Like I'm just really, and I mean, I know what's to come in this final set of episodes, and I'm just really happy that that supernatural aspect is back in full swing. Basically, absolutely. Well, I have lots for the spoiler slash connection section this week. I'm very excited, but uh, that's going to do it for the main episode. So anybody not joining us, thanks for listening, and we'll see you for episode 17. Actually, no, we will see you for our 100th episode. That's what's coming up next. So stay tuned. Yay. Bye-bye. Get them out of here. Put it down. We are back in the spoiler slash connection section. Okay. For me personally, mm-hmm. I don't even have a spoiler, I don't think. Okay. I just want to say that foreshadowing moment with Ed and Nadine where she lets him go. Yeah. Literally, all I can think about is that moment in their return and how in this moment, it makes me feel a little sad. But when I think about the moment in their return... It makes me feel happy for Nadine. Absolutely. And maybe it's because she's back in her right mind, quote unquote, yes. by the return. So she really can let Ed go. Absolutely. But yeah, like just that foreshadowing of what's to come between the two well, of them. Well, I mean, even like, so we think that there is something problematic about calling a spade a spade, like that term. Yeah. But I was thinking about spade being a shovel. And so for me, it was like Nadine's been trying to shovel herself out of this shit, but she needed like that. all that time. She needed to come back to her right mind. Maybe she needed Dr. Amp's golden shovel. I don't know. But what an echo. That's I yeah. love that. She just needed a, I mean, she needed some different dick. She needed a golden shovel. Mm-hmm. She's good to go. She okay. needed 25 years. She just needed that time. <laughs> She did 25 years. But I want to know what you have. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of minor connections as well, like kind of similar to that. Let's start with Coop saying that Carolyn Caroline is the love of his life. I'm sorry. What about Diane? Yeah. Immediately, I thought of that too. Excuse me, sir. (laughs) Like, I just don't know how to feel about that because when we do get to the return, when they finally meet, it's like an instant, oh, this is the love that I've been missing. I, I don't know. Like, that feels like the love of Cooper's life, honestly. Yeah, it's like we know, I guess, yeah, we know about what Cooper's been up to in the 25. Cooper himself, you know, has yes. been in the lodge for 25 years. Yeah. We know the start time of when and the end time of when he was in the lodge. So that means that that connection that we see with him and Diane in the end, and also Richard and Linda Mm and the different, like that connection between the two of them. When would this have happened? Well, for Cooper to have said that Caroline would be the love of his life. Right. Right. So it got me thinking that perhaps at the time of this episode, Carolyn was the love of his life, but, We know that Diane has also been trapped in a lodge space, right? True. And it started making me think, 
did they spend time together during this 25 years? Because Cooper does ask her, do you remember everything? So I'm like, okay, was there part of this like sort of purgatory 25 years that they actually spent together? I think they were definitely friends before Cooper went to Twin Peaks, but yeah, I don't know. Like maybe that's something that we can explore once we get to the return, but because when else would they have fallen in love? Like, right. Because now my mind is thinking about that scene in Missing Pieces where I got so mad. Love what because... you've done with your hair. <laughs> right. But Cooper was definitely flirting with her. Absolutely. Yeah. Which I know you can flirt with someone and like them or whatever and maybe not be in love with them. Or oh, whatever, for sure. So. Yeah. All right. So... <laughs> Norma saying that she always felt like Annie was from another place and time. Yes. I'm unsure exactly what I think of that, but I do love it as a character introduction, just knowing what we know about what's to come for Annie. And I'm particularly thinking about the scene where she appears to Laura, basically, in Fire Walk With Me, because... I get that Annie is in, well, she was in a lodge space. And so that could be the magic that's happening there. But I don't know. There's just something in there. It's a great introduction. I love the way it sets up the fact that Annie is also different. And yeah, really like that dialogue. Yeah. I mean, I got chills when it happened. Yeah, for sure. In the elevator with uh, Eckert and Andrew, Eckert says he's taken care of that in regards to Harry which is another thing I've never really picked up on, but this clearly has to be in reference to the woman that he is sending to sort of take Carrie out of the picture, I think. And I think that this was a plan for, obviously he didn't know that he was going to die. He didn't know Josie was going to shoot him. So I guess like his assistant doesn't get the memo and still goes through with the plan, right? Right. Oh my gosh. I didn't even think about that. But actually. that is a whole ass mess that is still Whoa. to come. Yeah. A wham. Whole ass mess. <laughs> a wham. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then my last thing here is just kind of a reflection on season two as a whole. I mean, before we got into season two, we were like, maybe we're going to figure out how to cover some of these episodes all in a clump because, you know, we know that there's some real stinkers coming up. And I'm so glad that we didn't do that. And actually what ended up happening is because of our summer schedule, season two has been quite elongated for us in a really kind of ironic way. But I'm already feeling nostalgic for stuff that has passed in season two. As much as I love the return, I'm so fucking excited to get to that content. But I don't know. It's just, yeah, as I was pulling out the DVD and figuring out which disc I was on, I was just like, oh, man, like we are really close to the end. And so much of what's happened, it's just it's been really nice to dive into it so thoroughly and come to the connection section with all of these new ideas, these new insights, this new point of view on how the whole series really does stick together in such a great way. Oh, absolutely. It's bittersweet. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Like, even the stuff in the marshlands, I'm I'm here for it. Like, I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we went there. I'm glad we had the, the journey. Yeah, I'm hating that less. So maybe by my next rewatch, I'll yes. be like, okay, I don't right. hate it that much. Yeah. 
one thing I do want to say is that, that we did say goodbye to James in this episode. Um, even though we do get, I guess, the phone call or his voice in another episode. Yeah. But when Laura says, I'll be here waiting when you return. When Donna I'll, says. I'm sorry. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> sorry, Laura. She's channeling it. me right now for some. Yeah. I hope this is an omen for the rest of my day. No. <laughs> <laughs> Now, when Donna says that to him, though, all I could think about was that she's she's not in the return. She's never mentioned. She's, there's Donna's Donna off somewhere else or whatever. And James shows back. It's like James returns and she's not there. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah. But like, I think that I wanted to say this in that moment when we were talking about it, but I was like, no, don't do it, obviously, because it's a spoiler, but mm-hmm. also because... That's what also gave me that kind of like awe feeling because for sure it's, it, that moment between the two of them saying like, you go do what you have to do and experience what you have to experience. And I'm going to be here waiting for you. Like not knowing what's coming up, you know, in 25 years or whatever, yeah. you're like, oh my gosh, that's a real great love. Like she's going to be waiting on him. And it's such a kick in the ass when you get to the return and James comes back. And she is not there waiting for him. Yeah. It's a love lost for sure. And I mean, when you look at it through that lens, it is a little heartbreaking. It is. I mean, we all have I didn't think I'd say that about the two of them. Absolutely (laughs) not. No, especially, you know, just a few episodes ago. But it was a really beautiful scene. And, you know, I think we can all relate in a way. Like, I think all of us have at least one person that, you know, it was that big love that we had, even if you were a teenager and you didn't really fully understand what love was at that time, but it still felt so epic and so life-changing for you at that time. And I mean, I'm sure none of us, or maybe only a few, a small few of us have been through similar situations to what James and Donna had been through together. And this goes back to a conversation that we had with Coral very early on about how you know, they came together after the loss of a friend because that was part of their healing. And now they're on a different part of their healing journey. And it's just, it's all very sweet. And I love that we were able to get there with those two characters and have that, have that nice goodbye, basically. Well, if that's all for this week, oh, wow. Would you look at the time? 9.30 already? We better get to the roadhouse. for listening to this episode of the damn fine tv podcast if you enjoyed the show please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform come hang out with us on instagram and twitter at damn fine tv you can find me on instagram at damn fine witch and mel's at superficial mel's and if you're watching tv make sure it's damn fine tv Damn fine. TV. I don't think that you can get too much Twin Peaks. I really almost did that in a, we better get to the roadhouse. (laughs) I wish I had a like sound of like a bike riding off or a car riding off to end that with. I will find one.